Well, good evening, everybody. Hi, how are we? Well, kind of mediocre. Hi, how are we? Excellent. It's wonderful to have you all here. For those of you that don't know and for the very few that might even care, I'm Ali Clark from Mix 102.3 and in daily. And welcome to, as I get all my paraphernalia up here, welcome to Marion Library. And this is all part of the inaugural Libraries SA statewide first of all event. So this is where we're really encouraging people to try something for the very first time. So maybe some of you are here for your very first library event, and if that's the case, welcome. It's lovely to have you along. For this event that we're about to dive into and what an event it, was, it will be, and I'm gonna talk about our guests in just a moment, but before we do go on, I would like to acknowledge that we are meeting here on the lands of the Ghana people and that we pay our respects to them as the traditional custodians of this land. We also acknowledge the deep feelings of attachment and relationship that the Ghana people have to country and we respect and value their past, present and ongoing connection to land and cultural beliefs. So, why are we all here? It's not to hear me prattle on. It is, of course, to learn more about one of our incredible authors and talk about her new book, The Bookbinder of Jericho. Now, this person was born in London. She grew up in Sydney and now lives in Adelaide, up in the hills. She spent most of her working life as a social researcher studying what keeps us all well and what helps us thrive. And she's the author, of course, of One Italian Summer, which was a memoir of her family's travels in search of a good life. And of course, she wrote a little book some of you might be familiar with, won a few awards, being adapted for stage and everything else. And that, of course, is the Dictionary of Lost Words, which became an international bestseller. Well, this book, The Bookbinder of Jericho, is her second novel and is a companion to that Dictionary of Lost Words. And again, combines her incredible talent for historical research and beautiful storytelling. Please welcome the incredible Pip Williams. Thank you, Ali. That was lovely. All I right. had a rock star entrance. That was great. <laughs> I did say that. She said, what if I trip? And she'll be, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Quick show of hands. Who's read the Dictionary of Lost Words? Thank and, you. <laughs> and who has read the latest one, The Bookbinder Jericho? Wow. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. So do you have to read them in that order, Pip? No, you don't. They're companion books. That's, that's how I refer to them. They kind of hold hands and I think one will enrich the other. But you could read them in either order. But, yeah, I think some people still prefer to read Dictionary before Bookbinder, but you could read them in either order. Now, the good news about this is that I'm not here to do all the work. This is as much about you as it is about me trying to help you learn more about PIP. So get ready for your questions as well. So get your thinking caps on because I'm not going to be able to get to all of them and you'll have your chance to ask some questions a little bit later on. But one of the tricky things in these talks is that we don't ever want to spoil anything too much for everybody else. So bear that in mind, seeing a few nods over there. So PIP, I might leave it to you to just explain for those that haven't read the bookbinder of Jerry what it is and what it's about. Yeah, sure. So, as we said, it is a companion to the Dictionary of Lost Words and both books are set in Oxford around the early 20th century. The Bookbinder of Jericho actually has a smaller time frame. It's set during the World War I years. So, starts in 1914 and goes through to about 1920. And it's the story of a young woman called Peggy and her twin sister Maud who live on a narrow boat on the Oxford Canal and every day they walk to work at Oxford University Press where they work in the bindery. 
and they help bind the books that essentially are being written and read by all of the scholars at Oxford University. But Peggy, every morning, looks across the road from Oxford University Press at Somerville College, which is one of the women's colleges of Oxford, and her dream really is to be a student at Somerville, but it's not a dream that is really available to a girl like her. I think one of the things that I've heard you speak about when researching this and even just that leaps off the page is that idea of Peggy, you know, binding these books, desperate to read what is in them, but then being reprimanded for doing just that. Yeah, and when I sort of had this image of a young woman in the bindery wanting to read, wanting to learn, wanting to be a student at Oxford, it was really a kind of sense of water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink because she actually has literally at her fingertips access to all of the ideas, all of the stories, all of, yeah, all of the information that she needs to be a scholar and yet she's told she can't read those words. And then there's her twin sister who is happy doing what she's doing. Just explain a little bit about where she is in life and, you know, the fact that she truly loves folding for the sake of folding, but you also see that in her languages or language. Yeah, so Peggy and Maud are identical twins. They look alike in every way, but they're very different personalities. They have very different desires and, and very different, I suppose, perspectives on life. The way I describe Maud is Maud uh, sees the world very differently to Peggy but also to most of the people around her and the world sees Maud as different. Maud loves nothing more than folding so she's actually very, very good at it. She's good at her job but when she comes home at night she continues to fold things and she makes beautiful kind of what we would call these days origami kind of sculptures and so on and she she turns scrap bits of paper into beautiful objects and she's very happy doing that she really loves and is very content with the life that she's been born into peggy on the other hand wants something more but she sees maud she loves maud dearly but she does also see her as an anchor as something holding her to a life that she would rather walk away from. Can you tell everybody, for those that don't know, how you came up with the story of these bookbinders? Yeah, so when I... The last time I went to Oxford to do the last bit of research for Dictionary of Lost Words, that was in October, I think it was October 2019. It was actually a research trip that I had planned for April 2020. And... Various things can, can sort of conspire to bring that forward a bit. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> so I was in the archives of Oxford University Press just gathering bits of information, particularly about the bindery because there's a scene in Dictionary of Lost Words where a book is bound. And I wanted to know a little bit more about the processes of binding a book but also the people who did that work. And actually I could find very little... There's so much information in the archives about all of the work that was done at Oxford University Press from the making of the little metal type in the foundry right through to the the books being 
um, sent off in lorries around the country. But there's almost nothing about the women who worked on the girls' side of the bindery. But the archivist there gave me or showed me a black and white film that was made in the early 1920s. I can't remember the exact title of it, but it's called The Making of a Book at Oxford University Press, something like that. And actually, I just found out recently, I had a reader send me an email. I get the most fascinating emails from readers. And this reader had heard me speak about this film and said that it's the the earliest film of the process of bookbinding. So, and it did. It went through every single process in the bookbinding world. And part of that in that film was the women folding the pages that had just come off the printer into what's called sections. And then another beautiful bit of footage of a woman, she looked to me like she was just dancing and gliding along the gathering bench where all of the sections of a book were piled up. And she's gathering them onto her arm. Like this. And she's she's beautifully dressed. She's wearing high heels. <laughs> oh, great. Of course. Her hair is so nicely done. And, and she just dances along, along the gathering bench and gathers all the sections for a book. And I watched this and immediately thought, I wonder if she ever stops to read what she's just gathered into her arms. Mm. And immediately... I had a character and that character was Peggy for a book, by the way, that I couldn't start writing because I hadn't finished writing the other one. (laughs) And But I also immediately answered that question. If she was working at the press in the bindery, essentially it's like a factory setting. They have to do everything that they do as fast as possible because they need production to be kept up. And so I knew if she did stop to read the pages that she was holding in her arms, she'd be reprimanded. She'd be told that her job is to bind the books, not read them, to gather those sections, not read them. And so not only did I have a character, but I had a character with, you know, a dream that was bound to be thwarted and so I had a book. Is it hard given that history and and factual history telling and even factual historical characters are so present in your book, is it hard for you not to romanticise even though you are writing fiction? I don't know if it's hard not to romanticise. I mean, part of the joy for me of writing these books is delving into the archives and the history and trying to get it right. So it, for me, and this isn't the same for all writers and I don't even think it should be the same for all writers of historical fiction, but for me I really like to get the history right. And so in that sense I don't want to romanticise the history. I, I just want to portray it in the most authentic way that I can. And so I'm always looking for evidence of what life might have actually been like which is easy if you're writing about men during World War I. Very easy. Or, no doubt, the women who were left at home. Yep, it's Pines. easy if you're writing about middle-class women in World War I. But it's very difficult if you're writing about working-class women in World War I. And the reason that is is because, obviously, the thing that's most interesting about the war years is the war. And the people who were most involved in the war were men and the people who died and who were physically maimed, who were shattered 
by that war were men. And these are really important stories to tell and they have been told over and over and rightly so. However, there were a whole lot of other people who were living through those times and we know far less about their experience. And I was really interested to understand and write about the experience of a, a working-class woman who didn't actually have skin in the game in, in a way. She didn't have a husband or a brother or a father fighting in France. She was just part of, you know, one of the many who was left at home to get on with living. And I wanted to know what that might have been like. Interestingly, if you do want to write about women, one of the places that you can go is women's art, women's writing, if you want to find out what the history books don't contain. And so I did do that. I did look for, for evidence of women's experience through memoir, novels, poetry and even visual art. And I found a lot Vera Britton's memoir, A Testament of Youth. Has anybody heard of Testament of Youth? It's probably the most famous memoir from a woman written during that time and it was invaluable actually in both books for me. Vera Britton was not only a student at Somerville College, she also left Somerville College to become a volunteer nurse in France and both of those experiences are important to this second book. So her, her memoir was really invaluable. Virginia Woolf's diaries were invaluable because she wrote almost every day, during, you know, between 1915, you know, for various periods during the war. And what was really interesting about that is this idea that war eventually falls into the background, kind of like COVID falls into the background, you know. Tragedy, the Ukraine, you know, the war in Ukraine falls into the background after a while and people get on with their daily lives. And so that was a really interesting thing to reflect on. And then the other thing I looked at was poetry and also visual art. So the visual art of an Australian a woman actually called Isabel Ray was really important because she was also a nurse at Etaple in France, which is uh, one of the places in the book. But all of these women that I've just mentioned are middle or upper class women. So they had what Virginia Woolf calls, you know, 500 a year in a room of their own. They could afford to make art and they had the time to make art. There's very little evidence you know, that I could gather from working class women. And so, you know, a lot of it is speculation or relying on sociological research. So you see that those first grainy images, those first black and white images, and you see a book in it. This is why you're a best-selling novelist because I would have just gone, oh, interesting, and moved on. <laughs> but you immediately have this character, this person. You know, you touch on going and researching through poetry and, and other ways to try to do the research. But can you just take us more into the process of what you go through writing a book? I can only imagine how interesting and confusing it might have been as you're doing dictionary as well. But what is it for you? Do you start very clearly with the finish, you know, in mind? Do you sit and plan every character out and then have a go? How do you write? So, yeah, so for me, I am a planner by nature. So, in fact, before I was a novelist, I was a strategic planner. That was, <laughs> was my job title. <laughs> and so planning is something that I do quite naturally but also something that I enjoy. 
And it's actually also something I can't avoid because with both of these novels, I've had an initial idea and initial scene actually in my in my head. So the the first scene I wrote and the first image I had in my head for dictionary was a little girl under the sorting table in the scriptorium looking at all the men's shoes. So that was that was the first image and I wrote that scene. But the second scene I wrote was the ending and it barely changed over the course of two years of writing that book. And then the same thing happened with this book. You know, I had a very early image that I start with of this young woman on the girl's side of the bindery doing her job and being told not to open one of the new books because it wouldn't do for her to crack the spine. And I wrote that and then the second thing I wrote was the ending. And so in in both books I know where I'm starting and I know where I'm ending and then very quickly, relatively quickly, I get a sense of all of the of the story arc, I suppose, and some of the main things that will happen in the lives of these women in order to get them from point A to point B. Yeah, but as I write, though, every... And I don't write in chronological order, necessarily. I just write the scenes that interest me most whatever day, you know, I'm writing. And what can happen is I'll start writing what I... You know, what I... I start writing a scene. I think I know what it's going to do, but as I write... You know, that's when the magic happens. So an idea comes into your head, you write it down and it can change the trajectory of things. Have you been in that space where that scene has changed but then the next day you do go back and reread it and go, no, I'm going to start again? Or do you find that it is a malleable beast that just keeps building? Yeah, it's more malleable than that. Usually as I write... It's a really interesting question. I've never even thought of that before. But no, rarely have I gone back and decided, nah, that's no good. Yeah, right. Normally, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of kind of plotting writing that you do. You know, you're describing something. You've got to set scenes up sometimes. But the interesting stuff, the inspired stuff, tends to stay. And I think that's because it's come from deep deep inside the recesses of your brain it's it's taken account of all that research it's taken account of all the reading it's taken account of all the ideas you've had in your sleep and you know an inspired kind of sentence if you like it's not it's not a it's not sitting there on its own it is yeah. sitting on a mountain and and so usually it's there because it needs to be there and in the back of my mind, I knew that and that's why it's come out. And so, no, I rarely change those those things. So, if that's the case and you find this joy and you have the start and the end, do you ever get writer's block? Because that's what we hear about so much, right, with authors or writers and that's almost a fear, this, you know, and... and I can only imagine there may have been a little bit of pressure <laughs> after the dictionary <laughs> comes out. You know, that whole idea of, okay, what's next, even though you were building it and, and writing it as you were, you know, going along with the other. Yeah, so there's probably two questions there. I don't get writer's block, or so far I haven't got writer's block. So touch wood yeah, because... Okay. everyone <laughs> touching wood. It's a... it, you know, it could easily happen. But I, I wonder if it would because yeah. one of the reasons I don't get writer's block is because I don't expect to write anything sensational every time I sit down. I just expect that I'll put words on the page and if they're crap, that's fine. So 
partly it's about expectations, I think, writer's block. Mm. It's okay for me to write rubbish for a week. That's okay. Eventually, though, something good will come out, but it will only come out if I'm writing the rubbish. So how do you know the difference? Oh, you feel it. You do. You feel it. So actually, that's a, that's a really good question. There's parts in both books, for instance, where even now, if I read them... Which pages? Come on. <laughs> I'll, I'll get emotional. Yeah. And I think as a writer, we have to have the same emotional response to what we're writing as we want the reader to have when they're reading. If I don't respond to what I've written, either as I'm writing it or when I read back, then the reader won't either. You know, there has to be... I have to be moved by it in some way. There has to be some energy. If I read back on a draft <laughs> and I realise I can't remember reading from there to there, it's because from there to there is boring and it needs to be edited out. Mm-hmm. That's usually why I've, you know, yeah, so, yeah. The, you know, you have to sort of just listen to your body sometimes when, when you write. But the other thing you asked about... The pressure. The pressure... You may all remember that the dictionary came out, Dictionary of Lost Words came out, I think it was the second day after we'd gone into lockdown. So I didn't have any of this, no face-to-face. I didn't get to talk to readers. I did a lot of Zoom events and thank goodness. But, you know, as soon as the Zoom event was over, I sort of made dinner and, you know, got on and watched watched Netflix and did what everybody (laughs) else was doing. And I'm not on social media, so I didn't have constant feedback about that book. And I also had nothing else to do. I was not travelling. Mm. And so I had the time and the headspace to write this second book. And my children were older. My youngest had just started university, which is a whole other, you know, <laughs> tragedy, really, <laughs> in terms of COVID, not in terms of him. He's yeah. still at university. <laughs> but, you know, just just the... The regret, you yeah, know, I, I adored university and then suddenly, you know, it's not the same as Very it used to be. Experience. Yeah, but so I didn't have children at home that I was homeschooling, none of that. I didn't have those sorts of concerns. So I just had this really wonderful opportunity to write another book without the pressure, actually, of, of meeting people and them asking, what are you writing next? Or can you tell us, you know, when will it be ready or anything like that? Mm-hmm. And so, I think I told you at the back, I didn't realise... I had anything to worry about until my publisher rang. I'd finished a draft, thank goodness, and he rang and said, how are you going, just checking in that you're not, you know, un, you know, caving in under the pressure of the second book? And I went, should I be caving in under the pressure of the second book? <laughs> now I think I'm caving in slightly under the pressure of the second book. But, yeah, it was mostly written, so it was okay. <laughs> so right now when you've read these books and you've learnt that Pip lives in the beautiful Adelaide Hills, who shuts their eyes and can imagine her, you know, looking over those sweeping vistas, coming up with the amazing melodic, you know, taking us into that language. Who pictures her writing like that? You know, the mist over the hills, yeah? Now do you want to tell everybody where you actually write? Busy coffee shop <laughs> in the main hey, street. Is anyone from Mount Barker? Because <laughs> she she stalks two coffee shops. That's where she's written all of yeah, this. <laughs> I, I have been told someone has walked in there and asked the staff if I'm there. So, <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't get free coffees yet. No, Isn't that ridiculous. <laughs> no, I need I need the buzz of of the coffee mm. shop to write. Yeah. And why and how do you choose? Because there's a, a couple of characters that span both of these books. 
why did one of them not become the star? Yeah, so that's interesting and I assume you're talking about Tilda. Tilda. Yeah, so... Like sex, well, has sex and that's quite... You know. She's unreal. Yeah. Tilda's <laughs> wonderful. So, like I said, these two books are companions and they're not... It's This isn't a sequel to the dictionary but it does share a time and place and so it shares a couple of characters. So many of the real people who lived at that time are in both books but in terms of the fictional characters there are two that show up in Bookbinder of Jericho and it's not a spoiler to say who they are. One of them is Tilda who is in Dictionary of Lost Words. She is Esme's suffragette and actress friend and in this book she is very, very she was very close friends with Peggy and Maud's mother Helen who has died three years before this book starts. And so she's maintained a connection to the twins. And, and the other person who makes an appearance in this book is Gareth. And that's because Gareth is a compositor at Oxford University Press. And so it makes sense that he, would, he and Peggy would come across each other because they work in the same place. Mm. This seems to be, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, about who controls access and who controls the knowledge and how that can be affected by gender, class, especially in even a period of time. I've always been interested in finding out how you have started your love of words because I don't know if many people know that you are dyslexic, which I think a lot of people on paper would probably say, well, that is a pretty tricky way to become a novelist. Can you talk to me about what growing up was like for you and how this love of reading which might have been challenging and is challenging for so many people obviously you found a way to embrace and fall in love with it yeah so yes I'm dyslexic my dyslexia would be sort of mild compared to some people's Mm. but it was still very noticeable as a child and just as noticeable now, actually, <laughs> my partner's up the back, the number of shopping lists that he's had to correct <laughs> over the years. But that would, you know, if, if you were in the wrong environment, that could be used to really turn you against reading. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It, you know, by some sort of irony, writing was the way that I needed to express myself as a child. So it wasn't drawing or painting or interpretive dance or any of that sort of thing. It was writing. It was words that I would put together. Once I understood how words worked and I was probably later to learn to read and later to learn to write, but once I did, I would use them all the time but mostly for myself. And so I was just writing stuff down mostly for myself and a, few, and a poem constantly and birthday cards to my parents. I, I probably benefited from a certain amount of benign neglect in that you know, my parents, like most parents, were just like thrilled that I'd put marks on paper and, you know, turn them into a poem and given them something. And they would gush over the creativity or the this or the that. But they would never correct my spelling. Teachers would do that. But I also had some really great teachers who recognised that I had dyslexia and then would help me compensate for it in class. That didn't actually happen, though, until I was in senior high school because I was a child of the 70s and, you know, early 80s. And so dyslexia wasn't really something that was addressed at school when I was a kid. And I was bright enough to sort of compensate, so it was never an issue. And as soon as there were 
personal computers and typewriters. You know, my dad bought me a typewriter when I started uni that had one line of... I don't know if anybody else had one of these. It just had one line that would you could type in before it would print, before it would type it up onto the paper. So it was still a typewriter. And it would underline all of the misspelled words so that I could then look them up in a dictionary, which I have to admit I had a love-hate relationship with because... It's hard to use dictionaries when you can't spell, despite everybody throughout my entire life telling me to check the dictionary. It's just this just made no sense to me. Yeah, and so, you know, I I often say words are just tools, but they're not they're not the idea behind a poem or a novel or a recount of your weekend. You know, if if with children I, I have said this to teachers but also parents, if a child comes to you with something that they've written, that they've spent time being creative with and you spend 80% of your time correcting their spelling, you are going to put them off writing. But if you spend 80% of your time engaging with their ideas and their creativity, then they'll continue to pursue writing even though their spelling is atrocious. And I was in that category. But I've come across a lot of people doing these sorts of talks who are in the other category. And those people have sometimes come up to me in the signing queue and burst into tears because of what they've lost, um, because of the focus on correction rather than the focus on their ideas and creativity. When did you realise that you were good at it? Well, I used to write... I wrote all the time as a kid. Yeah, hey, look... <laughs> yeah, you've re- you've got kids. You, they're not all good at it, oh, and yeah, neither no, was I've I. Seen plenty <laughs> of pictures that are not going to be hung in any museum anytime soon, right. but that's okay. That's right. <laughs> and like I said, it wasn't really for anyone but myself. But when I was fifteen, I wrote a poem because mum and dad had said I wasn't allowed to go out, and we'd had a big fight, and I'd run off to my room in tears, and I wrote a poem called Fifteen. Very imaginative, I was. And I sent it to Dolly magazine and they published it. Get out. Get You're in out. Dolly? Uh, yes. Before or after the Dolly doctor section? I mean, not that that matters. <laughs> no, about the same time. But I've got a story about that. I was at the Bellingen Writers Festival recently and I told that... Oh, actually, someone asked about the poem. And I said, yeah, you know, I published this poem in Dolly magazine when I was 15. And then someone got up at the back and said, what year was that? And I had to think back and I think it was 1986. And so now you all know how old I am, anyone who's <laughs> good at maths. And, and then the person who asked the question said, because I have the editor of Dolly magazine oh. here. And Lisa Wilkinson oh, was the editor out. of Dolly magazine at the time and she edited Poets Corner. <laughs> so she was the person who chose my poem to be published in the magazine. Wowee. And it was a quite, a, quite a moment, really, because, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because that was the first time that I'd had real external validation for writing. Having said that, I didn't write another thing or publish another thing creatively for 30 years. So <laughs> 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 but, but it was always in the back of the, my mind that maybe I could. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I longed to, you know, a little bit like Peggy longs to learn. Well, and it also sounds like everything in that life in between the research, the strategic planning that has brought you to here. Absolutely. I I honestly don't think if I had decided at 19 
that I was going to do a creative writing degree, not that you could when I was 19, but that I was going to pursue creative writing as, as a, a career, I would never have written these books. I've only been able to write these books because of, I think, a lot of the work experience that I've had, both as a researcher and, weirdly, as a strategic planner, because it is all about seeing seeing how things connect and so on. And I do think that, you know, a certain life experience contributes sometimes to, to the writing of some books. You spoke of the joy of history in your books and, and doing, you know, the right thing by that historical time. For you, where is the joy, the pure joy? Is it that final moment where you have got from your first picture in your mind and your first to the end and shut that for the very last time? Is it when someone comes to you and says, I love your book? Is it, I don't know, when you might sit down and just in a quiet moment look back at these incredible novels that you have written? No, for me the pure joy is those moments when I'm sitting in the coffee shop and I'm writing a whole lot of crap and then I get that one idea, that singular sentence which sort of makes sense of all the other stuff I've been writing and it's an idea that, you know, I can I can feel in my body that is that is good for the story. That's the part I love the most. I think as a writer, if what you love the most is people congratulating you on your book or even liking it for that matter, you you're in play trouble. Football. Yeah. You don't play footy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is also lovely, but the thing that sustains me is the writing, is the doing, yeah. Um, I'm going to hand it over to you in a moment, but just before I do, if there was one thing that you could change, if anything, would there be anything you'd change about either of these two babies? No, because this is such a trite analogy... But they are a bit like children books. <laughs> and once you've pushed it out, you've just got to be happy <laughs> <laughs> with how it turned so out. Happy. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Mm. Even if you're not always happy with every single detail, <laughs> on the whole. <laughs> I think that's a perfect note to throw it open to you. So here is the incredible Pip Williams. This is your moment. Please, if you haven't been to one of these events, don't be worried. Throw your hands up. There's one right here. A lady right here and speak nice and loud. Of course. And we'll try to get through as many Hello, as we Pip. can. I'm just intrigued. You say you don't write your scenes concurrently but all over the place. How do you then manage to get from A to B when they may have gone off in slightly different directions? So generally I do have a sense of the journey of, of where it's going to go and some of the main kind of stops along the way. Um, and so it's those stops along the way that I'm writing scenes for. And generally those stops along the way are always going to be there, though they may change, the nature of them may change slightly. What can happen the way I write? So I'm like a patchwork writer. I, you know, I write patches and then sew them together. What can happen, though, is you can, you can write a scene that's three-quarters of the way through the actual story... And it suddenly you get one of those amazing ideas that you have to write into the story and it does change something you wrote for the beginning. And so there's a little bit of fixing in that sense. Whereas people who write from the beginning to the end, 
actually that can still happen. They can get three quarters of the way through and realise, oh, this has to happen now and so I have to change something at the beginning. So, yeah, but I generally have an idea of the stops along the way. Throw your hands up nice and late. And while you're going there, how important are editors to you? Because you speak about, well, that joy is when you feel that that is yeah. the great writing. How hard is it then to have somebody else? <laughs> yeah. So you feel, you think, oh, my God, this is the best paragraph ever. And then an editor comes along and they go, red line, red line, red line. <laughs> I love editors. I have learnt how to be a better writer because of my editor. Her name's Ruby Ashby Orr. And she's edited all three of my books at Firm Press. And, you know, sometimes I think editors should actually have a little byline on the front cover of books because they do do a lot of work. They make books better. And any, any writer that tells you that they don't is... ...is lying. Editors, they, they do a different job to the writer... ...which is why editors aren't all writers. We, we're good at different things. But I am very grateful for the editors involved. Mm. Did you read books as a child and if so, what? <laughs> did you, I can did. you hear these questions from the floor at the back? Yep, great, beautiful. So the question was, yeah, did I read books as a child... I did. I was actually, despite being dyslexic, I was, a, I'm, I was and still am extremely slow. But that doesn't stop you from reading. It just means you read fewer books, unfortunately. <laughs> so I'm a huge audio book listener to make up for that. But I read lots of books when I was little and I, and I read children's books. I wasn't one of those precocious readers that read heaps of adult books when they were eight years old. I read kids' books and my favourite books were Trixie Belden, oh, the Trixie Belden I series. Oh, I love her. Oh, yay, I got a clap. She's oh, the Trixie best. Got a clap. She was the best and I was much more into Trixie Belden than Nancy Drew or yeah. the Famous Five or Secret Seven. Trixie Belden, and I, of course I didn't know this at the time, but I've thought about it since. I think she was like a feminist, a yeah. kind of early feminist icon for me because she was this kind of average-looking... Strawberry blonde girl. Not so studious girl who led a band of boys and girls to solve mysteries. And I I adored Trixie Belden. I also loved The Lion, The Witch and the Wardrobe and, you know, all of those books as well. But And then I just I just kept reading, you know. I, I, I read anything, really. What do you love reading now? I do read a lot of literary fiction now. I still love kind of... I'm not so much into crime because I have a weak stomach, but I... I really love spy thrillers and things like that. I love a bit of fantasy. I love, you know, Jake, I love Harry Potter. So then I the love, next question. I, I'll read lots of, lots of things. What were you binging on Netflix then during COVID? The Witcher. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I was so hoping um, you had just some dirty moment like, you know, the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. No, but that's okay. I, <laughs> I, I do not lower myself to the Real Housewives. <laughs> Right. But the rest of you, like me, master, you can come no, to my support I, I group. I was a master chef. Yeah, master a chef. A master chef. And yeah, which all sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. And I watch what my kids watch half the time. Yeah. So Stranger Things. Oh, I like, yeah. I like it a bit of fantasy. I love fantasy. Cool. So. That's a great question. Who else? Oh, we're going to make you work. Yeah, here we go. Hi, Pip. Did you read historical fiction as a child? Um, okay, no, this is my time to confess. 
I, I have never really gone to the historical fiction section in bookshops. It's not, it's not a genre that I would go to. I read, I read books for the, I suppose for the content, the things that, the themes that they're interested in or, you know, so I have read a lot of historical fiction. I, I love Geraldine Brooks, for instance, and she's a historical fiction writer. But I'm not reading it because it's necessarily historical. I'm reading it because it's a great story. I wrote historical fiction because I was interested in the dictionary. That took me to a certain time in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wouldn't write historical fiction continually just because I want to keep writing about the past. I have to be interested in some aspect of the past to write about it, not the past in general. Yeah. I think we've got two mics, so maybe if we want to get them up. One one of you want to go right at the back and then... If I could just add to that, I actually love speculative fiction and I sometimes think historical and speculative fiction have a lot in common because we have to imagine ourselves into another time. So, yeah, you know. Pip, Ali mentioned that book of the dictionary has been turned into a play, which State Theatre are doing this year. Were you involved in the writing of the script of that, firstly? And secondly, are you happy with the way it's come out on stage, if you've seen it? So, um, And is the director in the room, before we go any further? <laughs> Mitchell. No, so the, the director is Jessica Arthur, who's actually from Sydney. But I was involved in that I was asked, was it OK to adapt it? And Mitchell Boutel, who who is the director of the theatre company, did ask, would you like to adapt it? But I could tell in his voice. (laughs) (laughs) He was hoping I'd say no. And luckily, there was no way I would have adapted my own book because I'm not a playwright. And if I had, it wouldn't be a very good play. And Verity Lawton, who also lives in the Adelaide Hills, is the playwright. And we've, we've talked about the book. We've had coffee a few times. I got to be part of a workshop. I've seen a read-through. And I think it's going to be fantastic, mostly because I saw a read-through very early on and it brought me to tears and it wasn't because I was seeing something I'd written adapted. It was because the way she'd written the play had, had brought me to a place where I felt emotional and... ...and connected, so I think it's going to be fantastic. Brilliant. Down here. Thank you for the evening and the chat. It's lovely meeting you as an author. I'm blown away by, by the fact that you wrote about your holiday... ...Italian holiday, and then graduated to these historical type books. It, it's a huge transition from almost a, a, a holiday diary. I loved it, by the way. Uh, How long does it take you to research these books? So I might just repeat that just because the microphone was down, but this lady was just marvelling at how going from one genre of book, which was Pip's first one, which was writing that diary-like take on the Italian holiday to these books, and then the final part of that question was how long does it take you to research these books? Yeah, so for me, writing One Italian Summer, which is a memoir, for me that was like an apprenticeship in creative writing. I knew that I could sustain that writing because the story was important to my family. So if if no one ever published it, it didn't matter. And the motivation was just to finish it because then we'd have it as a keepsake. But the writing of it was like an apprenticeship because what I really wanted to do was write novels. 
And so it served that purpose and luckily it was also published and, and hopefully people enjoy it. But the other interesting thing was, though, uh, the memoir was, like you said, it, it, cover, it sort of followed our journey through Italy and I wove my emotional journey through that physical journey. So there was a scaffold. Well, a similar thing has happened with the historical fiction novels because the scaffold is the history. I'm not moving that. And so I can map out the historical timeline and then weave my fiction through it. So in some ways I have, I have still made a grad, gradual transition from non-fiction to fiction. But, yes, this isn't completely made up because I have relied on history to fill in some of the gaps. Yeah. But you did walk the streets of Jericho, didn't you? Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. So the research to me is really important. And part of that research, it's not just being in the archives and, you know, reading the right documents. It's being there and knowing what it smells like and feels like and looks like and sounds like and trying to imagine what, those places might have been at a different time. Oxford's wonderful because so much of what was there a hundred years ago is still there because of its, you know, history as a, a university town. And it wasn't bombed during either world wars, so it's intact. Right up the back, I think, are we? Oh, no. Hi, We're, Ali. Oh. Hi, Pip. I was just wondering if you could tell us how you moved from your regular work over to your creative side and what that transition looked like and if there was a point that you just went, I really need to do something creatively. There was. There was a point where I needed to do something creatively. So it was something that I think I've always wanted to do and as I got older and wasn't doing it, it became more and more urgent, if that makes sense. And there was a time... When I was working, I was a social scientist at University of Adelaide, then University of South Australia, working with Barbara Pocock, actually, who's now the Green Senator at the Centre for Work and Life. And and I remember her hers I remember having a conversation with her and she, you know, it was one of those conversations, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, Well, I hope I'm working less and writing more. And she kind of laughed and I said, No, I'm deadly serious. Anyway. And really that's what I did. You know, I I tried to there's a fine line because you need to earn a certain amount of money but every time I earned a bit more money I worked a few less hours until I was working three days a week and writing two days a week but eventually I couldn't I couldn't be an academic and a writer they were incompatible for me because I was writing so much at work it was such intellectual work I couldn't then turn my mind to something else so I had to leave academia and part of that was this trip to Italy. It was a bit of a midlife crisis. Essentially, you have to fall in a heap and have a crisis and smash the car and then have a conversation saying, I can't do this anymore, let's take the kids out of school and quit our jobs and go to Italy. That's, that's important. You need to do that. Yeah. The good news is that um, Pip's husband, Shannon, is here. So we can fact check that a little bit later and how, <laughs> how, how relaxed yeah. he was maybe during that process. Paula, I think there, yeah, there's a couple up in the back row behind you. And there's one down here while we wait. Hi, Pip. Yes, with each of your books that you have written, how do you celebrate each one? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. I'm, I'm with champagne, usually. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, with champagne. But, you know, like, dictionary was hard because we were all in lockdown. So it was a lonely 
glass of champagne, but still went down all right. Up <laughs> <laughs> the back. And I was going to well, actually, I've got a few questions, but I'll try and stick to one. We talked about the play, but also it's going to be adapted into a TV series. Are you feeling similarly excited about that or a little bit nervous in terms of how that will go? I'm just excited. On both counts, with the play and also the TV series, my kind of discussions with the people who are producing these new works of art, essentially, is to make it their own. I, I am excited about the idea that something I have done is inspiring other artists to do something that they're good at and I would hate to think that they feel they have to stick so closely to the book that they don't make the most of the medium that that they're working in because there's so much that stage or film can do that I can't do as a writer but there's also a lot that I can do as a writer that they can't do and so I'm really excited to see what happens and and one of the people that I'm working with on these things she talked about the, the different versions of this story essentially having the same DNA and I really liked that idea and, yeah, so I'm very excited. And also it's being turned into a book concerto. So a musician is writing a concerto <laughs> based... Wow, I know, I know. Yeah, this is just amazing. amazing, based on the story. And Esme is going to be played by a harp. <laughs> oh. Well, then, in television land, yeah. can you shut your eyes and tell me who you think might play Peggy and Maud? No, I can't. What about Hugh Jackman? Can we get okay. him a role? <laughs> Just ask him for a friend. Ask I, him think, a friend. I think he has to be one of the older characters oh, yeah. now. <laughs> no offence, Hugh. <laughs> Hi, Pip. You mentioned that you went to Oxford to do some research and I suppose in my way of thinking it's quite a different... You've got the research component and then you've also got the creative writing. Is the research a necessary evil or do you love that as much as the creative writing? I adore it, yeah. So, and the difficulty with research is that you can keep doing it and not write at all because research can be so fascinating. But again, I think that's where my, my background as a research academic came in handy actually because I, I do know how to research for purpose and so corralling the research is one thing and knowing where to stop researching is another but I and I I do a lot of research early on but then I, I just start writing and the rest of the research has to respond to the needs of the story otherwise I don't do it and that's really important otherwise your story ends up being just an account of your research and that's not very interesting. So, yeah, the characters have to tell me what it is I need to know. We've got time for one more. Okay. Hi. Hi, Pip. Hi, Ali. I was just wondering, in your dictionary book, you had a little thing where the adoptive parents moved to South Australia. So I was thinking, is that a personal thing for you? Because you moved from Oxford and of then you... Of course. Came yeah, beautiful. I thought it would be like a Mickey Mouse. It was Mouse, such an indulgence. You know, the Mickey ears thing? Kind yeah. Of, you know, throw everything in a book. Well, there was a... No, there were a few things I... Well, it started because I was writing... In the Dictionary of Lost Words, I'm writing about the dictionary, but I couldn't write about the dictionary without writing about the suffrage movement because the two things were happen, happening concurrently in the UK at the time. And when you write about the suffrage movement in the UK, you quickly realise that um, there were Australian women over there helping 
with that fight because Australia and South Australia, we can very proudly claim, is the first place in the world where women had full suffrage. So New Zealand, they could vote the year before us, but they couldn't actually run for parliament until 1929. And so South Australia in, 19, in 1884, women could vote and run for parliament, as could Aboriginal men and women, which is something that we all forget. So, but I think it's worth remembering that Aboriginal people had the right to vote in South Australia as well until Federation, and then they lost that right. But because Adelaide, South Australian women, had already won the, the right to vote, they went overseas and helped other women in that fight. And Muriel Matters, who is an Adelaide woman, was one of those women. And so I inserted her into the suffrage story and then I had an Adelaide connection and it's really just, yeah, it, it, there was an indulgence it there. Reading it. <laughs> as long as it works for the story, that's the main thing. <laughs> so. We're about to release you and you can come up and pip can sign books and you can also pick up a copy of the book binder of Jericho. But one final question. You were writing Dictionary for Lost Words and you came up with the idea for this, you've written this, is there any chance that there is already another one germinating around or you're being, being worked on at the moment, a different novel? So I, I do have a couple of ideas for new novels. I think the next thing I write, though, will be a bit more contemporary. Like I said, historical, being a historical novelist was not my plan as much as I love it. I hope I can do other things and, and I'm going to try something different next time. But I also have an idea for another novel <laughs> set in Oxford in the past. So <laughs> I'm going to let that one stew. <laughs> well, I think I can safely say on behalf of everybody here, you stew away and we cannot wait to see whatever comes next from you. Thank you, the wonderful Pip Williams. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. It was lovely. And now we'll just sit here so we don't trip on the way out and we can make a movie star exit. But what I will do now is thank you all very much for coming. Now, while you're out there, as I said, there's going to be books for sale, the book binder Jericho for sale just in the foyer outside the library and then Pip will be signing inside the library. And if you're not a member of the library, have a think about it and hopefully and grab one of the staff members here and talk about this first of all and the ideas of it. This is the inaugural first of all festival and they will be doing it every year from here in July. So find out more and we'd love to see you at more of these events in our wonderful South Australian libraries. Thank you very much and travel safe home.